Let's get ready to mumble. That's well, about as good as we get. Hello, welcome to Life of Brian. I'm Kevin Hillier and here he is live from the 25th floor of the uh, Brian Mannix building on the Gold Coast. Uh, it is, oh yes, look it is, it's Brian Mannix. Hello there, Kevin, and hello to you listening. And uh, I don't know what the weather's like down there. Kevin, what's it like today? Don't you do this every time to me. You know that Melbourne's weather is is being very brutal, very un-November-like. Uh, and it's awful. And I know that you're in a singlet, shorts, and a really Queensland attitude. Well, yeah, that's probably true. No, it's a bit cold here today. It's um, it's not going to get till 28 till about, well, 1 o'clock. Oh, didums. It's only 27 now. Did you have to wear a shirt with sleeves rather than no sleeves? No, I've told <laughs> Yeah, I know what you mean. But, um, no, it's a beautiful day and... Uh, Oh, have you been watching the World Cup? Yes, loving it. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, it's I'm loving really good. it. I'm really and loving I th- it. I thought Australia would go out in straight sets, but we're still a chance. We are, and uh, people will be listening to this before we have our crack at Denmark, and uh, a draw will get us through, I think. Yeah, but that's going to be a big ask. Denmark, well, he didn't uh, finally say last week he thought they could win it. Yeah, yeah. A good so, side. But at least we haven't embarrassed ourselves. It was good to, to beat uh, Tunisia. And um, I was watching Canada. They're going pretty well. They, they were playing Croatia. And I thought, you know, Canada got the first goal. I thought, oh, good on them, you know, because they haven't been in the World Cup since 1986. And they had sort of cool black clothes on. But uh, Croatia, who wear a jumper that looks like they stole the tablecloths from La Pulquetas <laughs> and strapped them to them. They were, they were just a little bit too good. But um, no, I've been really enjoying the World Cup and um, I'll be getting up at two in the morning your time uh, on Thursday to watch Australia take on Denmark. Yeah, you have, have you got a, you know, have you picked up on Cameroon or Serbia or any of the oh, other, other nations? Morocco. Morocco's <laughs> going really well. Um, this is probably the surprise packet. And, yeah. Uh, oh, good. Yeah. And uh, what's her name? Costa Rica, I think, beat. Did they beat Japan? Germany? They beat Japan. Japan. Yeah, yep. beat Japan. Yeah. Because I, I rate Japan. They're very good. So, um, yeah, it's all very exciting stuff. And put in perspective, Australia was beaten by France, who are the current holders, who beat Belgium, uh, sorry, beat, uh, beat um, uh, Denmark 2 1. So they're actually. They're actually Probably the best side, or one of the three best sides in this yeah. entire competition. So we didn't lose to a bunch of mugs. No, no, no. But um, the trouble is that France is already through now. Yep. So whether they put their best team on the field to play Tunisia, that that could work against us. But you know, because if Tunisia could get a draw with them, we we wouldn't like that. I don't think would the we? Uh, the France second eleven uh, is uh, is pretty good too. So I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be too upset about that. <laughs> well. Their bench was better than our starting 11, anyway. absolutely. Now, on this uh, program, we have two great uh, men of the Australian music industry to bring to you, and it's not me and it's not Brian. It's two other men. It is Mm. uh, part two of uh, my conversation with B. Bertles where we talk about all the Little River Band stuff we got through Zoot and through Mississippi, and we got to the start of the Little River Band, so we're going to pick it up from there and and, uh, talk about that. And our other guest is a, a, a Gippsland boy, 
uh, who's got a hell of a voice and has had a hell of a music career, Peter Couples. Yes, he has, and um, he's he's a good bloke to have a beer with. He's he's really fun. He's a really fun bloke to hang out with. As we will find out, because you have had that experience on a uh, one of those cruise boat things. Yeah, we did the rock cruise together, and um, and when we did a, another cruise around the harbour, right, Sydney Harbour together. So um, yeah, no, he's a good bloke, Pete, and um, can't wait to hear what uh, Beeb's got to say about LRB. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about uh, Glenn Shorrock joining the band about uh, Beeb living in Nashville these days, uh, about his book that he wrote uh, every day of my life, about uh, his experiences, and we'll talk about the songs and the voices that made up LRB. And with uh, with Pete, we've got we're going to everything from uh, a fact that that both not. Not surprised or shocked us, but he's a very good uh, junior footballer, was Pete. In fact, good enough to be picked up by an AFL club. How about that, eh? Yeah. Yes, so. you, watch, you listen to this program, you learn stuff. Yep, and uh, we'll talk about his relationship with John English. And I, wa- I want to finish the show with a little bit uh, this uh, this time around of John English and Peter Couples together doing a bit of a, a bit of stuff that, uh, that I found on YouTube. We'll use that could- to finish the show off. Great, because they were very good friends and, um, yeah, that'll be good. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing it. They're a good double act together too. Now, one three hundred five 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 seven six. What is that number, Brian? That's uh, Mercot's Driving Excellence, uh, Kev, and um, sounds like uh, somebody driving near you could have done with a gift certificate to Mercot's. Yes, and a spec savers, so if they could have seen me. Would have been <laughs> right. really, really handy. Yes, no, I had a, I had a traffic uh, incident on the weekend and um, I don't. I have a hire car now because mine's in the shop deciding whether mm. whether the, the, it's been killed off or whether it uh, lives to fight another day. But, uh, yeah, got uh, got whacked nice and uh, nice and properly. Not my fault, obviously. Um, just came out of a shopping centre and into the side of my car, as you do. Yeah, it was lucky you were drunk, otherwise um, you could have been really hurt. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, it, 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 I haven't had one for such a long time and that the sound of another car, a car hitting a car, when, oh. you're, when you're not in the car, you, you sort of, it makes you look, but when you're actually in the car, it's like, Jesus, hang on, what just it's, happened then? It, it's frightening, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. Really is. It, it is. really is. Um, and... Um, and Mercot's, that's why you should go, go yeah, to Mercot. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, all these little things that you just forget about your driving, to check here, to look here, to, to be aware of those things, they'll they'll reinforce all those things uh, with you. Uh, so give a gift certificate to someone who you think might be an accident waiting to happen. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because it's Christmas time. There's going to yeah. be a lot of people on the roads driving. So and, and, uh, and doing silly things like trying to find car parks and trying to get out of uh, out of shopping centre car park, all those little sort of things that happen. Um, oh, yeah. And you know, um, I actually reckon shopping car parks, oh. uh, shopping centres, that's a great place to get a crash because nobody's looking where they go and they're all just looking for a car parking spot. And they should be looking up the number one three hundred triple five five seven six. And talking to Mercots. Yes, and they'll remind you that when you're behind the wheel of a car, the most important thing you need to concentrate on is driving that car, nothing else. That's Just it. That. Just that. Don't worry about making a toasted sandwich while no. you rip it along the freeway. No, no. not the time. No. 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 Don't be playing with the Rubik's Cube when you rip it along the freeway. Just concentrate on the steering wheel and the vision and watching and ringing Mercots because exactly. that's all I know. Just pretend okay. like it's a PlayStation game and you're you're in there and someone might get hurt because someone might get hurt. That's it. All well right. Said. Let's get to our uh, guest for this week. Bee Beetle's coming up a little later on, but uh, right now let's get to the, the boy from Gippsland, the one and only Peter Couples. Now, you're a Gippsland boy, aren't you? Yes, from Woodside. 
in um, in Gippsland, not far from Sale on the yep. ninety mile beach. Yep. So how did how did all that? Because you started really young, didn't you? You know, we know like your brother's band when you were twelve or something. Yeah, yeah. I joined brother's band when I was twelve years old, and we we sort of toured around Gippsland in an old combi for a few years. Then we won the Hoadley's Battle of the Sounds in when I was about sixteen. We came to Melbourne and played. Uh, at Festival Hall for the country final. Didn't win that, but there was a couple of agents there that were pretty keen on booking some work in Melbourne. The drummer had already sort of planned to move. So uh, and then I just got drafted by a footscray, so I was going to move down, and my brother and I were uh, both in the band, and it was just one other player that was, we had to convince, and he didn't take much convincing, so we just all moved to Melbourne. Now, you very quickly glossed over, I got drafted to Footscray. Yeah. <laughs> I saw Brian's face. Brian, Brian went, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I spent, a, I spent a season under Teddy Whitten there. So, so what, what would the, that have been, 70 what, 71, 72? Yeah, I was about, yeah, probably about 72. I think it was about 17 years old, something like that. Yeah. Uh, so 71 maybe, yeah. So what was so, that? Uh, did, you, did, did you play some 19s or did you play some reserves? What did you play? No, I, I just did a whole – I did the whole pre-season with them and uh, I played like inter-club matches with them and I also played a couple of uh, pre-season matches. I think one was against Fitzroy and maybe one against Richmond. You know, they were rotating a lot of players. So they didn't spend a whole lot of time on the ground. But um, And then I'd go home in the weekend and I was playing for sale. Because uh, the band still had some work in Gippsland that had been booked for 12 months in advance. So we'd go home and and uh, I'd play for sale in the Latrobe Valley League. And then I'd come back on Monday and uh, and then do three three uh, three nights training with, uh, with the doggies. And well, you're a you Collingwood play? man, aren't you? Yes, yeah, yeah. I've been a Collingwood man uh, all my life, basically, yeah. My brother, who I joined his band, he was the one that, that uh, kind of got me to play for Collingwood. Okay. When you were playing yeah. football for, for Footscray, uh, beat, um, yeah. you said you were under Ted Witten, so it makes begs the question, did you stick it up? Is that what you did? <laughs> did you stick it up? <laughs> uh, I, I think that catch cry came later. A catch cry came later. But <laughs> so the, oh, he, was, he was a tough bugger, um, believe me. As a coach, he was, he was tough. He played. He coached like he played. And every time I'd run into him in the bowels of Channel 9 because, you know, I was a regular with Ray Martin and uh, Ray would always get Teddy to come in and talk football on a Friday. Who's going to win and who's not? And I'd, be, I'd probably do two shows a week. I'd open and then sort of close when they did the Melbourne ones. And he always remembered me and he always spotted me and I'd always tried to avoid him because that handshake. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I remember once I had to play guitar on the show and, after he bloody crushed my fingers, I ended up having to stick him in a uh, in a bucket of ice. <laughs> it was unbelievable uh, that handshake. It was it was it was uh, rearranging your hand for the next week and a half. Oh, it was incredible. Yeah, I mean, I spoke to people there. You know, like Dermot used to come into Channel Nine and do stuff with Ernie and East and that. And um, and uh, you talk to those guys, and uh, they'd go, "Oh God!" Even when he even when he came around that last time, that iconic time that he did the lap at the MCG, he was he was kind of blind, and uh, he went into the rooms, and they reckon his handshake was still just as strong as it ever was. Yeah. Wow, amazing, amazing. So, yeah, what what sort, what sort of a player were you, Pete? Uh, 
10 hours forward, changing on the ball. I, I came runner-up in the best and fairest in my league. That's sort of why I got drafted, and I won the goal-kicking from 10 hours forward. So I came down with a guy called Gary Baker, who used to play yeah. for Stony Creek. He ended up playing a couple of hundred games for Melbourne. They had a big beer. I think he played 10 hours forward. Yep. Yeah, played against him. Um and uh, he reminded me, because he's on radio down in Tassie. Yes. And uh, many years ago, he reminded me that we had a bet before a game. And uh, and, uh, and I said uh, that I'd kick five on him, and I did. So he owed me a dollar. <laughs> and he paid up. <laughs> but then when I got back to Woodside, one of my old footy mates said, no, you kick seven on him, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, got so uh, so was that a big decision to make, or was that an easy decision to make to say, no, I'm not doing footy, I'm going to go and play music? No, it was that was easy for me, Kevin. I, um, you know, I just I always wanted to play music. That was my life's ambition. I loved playing football. I had a little bit of natural talent, but I, I didn't have the drive and desire. And the game was getting faster, and I was getting slower. So uh, it was a bit hard for me to catch up. Well, you know, Brian's obviously an elite athlete and would have been a, a league footballer yeah. of, of some some oh. enormous, uh, enormous... Would have loved to have had him underneath me when I was rucking. Farmer <laughs> 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 and Goggin. Farmer <laughs> uh, yes, uh, uh, and something. I'm not sure about Goggin, but anyway. Uh, <laughs> Giggins, <maybe. laughs> Goggin. Yeah. So when did, when did st- Stylus happen in what, early, mid-70s, 75 or thereabouts? Yeah, 74. 74. Okay. We, uh, Ian Mason left Mason's Cure and most of us were with Ian in Mason's Cure. He went back to writing jingles for Big M and all those sort of people. Yeah. And we, uh, and then I think he sort of joined the bootleg family band as well. We just got Sam McNally in and then just changed the name and started doing my songs instead of Ian's. And I was, I was getting heavily into soul music at that stage. So hence the, uh, the, you know, we ended up recording for Motown. Yeah, which is quite a, a, an astonishing – For I think Kiki D was the first white female ever signed to Motown, and I think you were the first white group, weren't you? Yes, yeah, first all-white band. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it was funny, and I think that's what happened. See, Barney Ailis was the A&R guy for, um, for Motown, and he loved the concept. Wheatley did the deal with him, and when they released the first album, they just put a mask on the front cover. They didn't want anybody to know what colour we were. And uh, so we, we were getting a lot of airplay in places like Philadelphia, you know, that was predominantly our sound was Philadelphian um, with the harmonies and sort of the more of that softer soul. But Barney got poached by um, uh, Elton John for Rocket Records, which I think he did that duet with Kinky D. So oh, he probably right. went as well. And oh. um, so when Barney left, um, the enthusiasm for the all-white band project sort of uh, didn't, didn't really continue. So we, we released the second album. They did really nothing to promote it. And uh, then we thought, well, uh, that's over. So we, we sort of uh, just, I guess, disbanded at the end of the end of uh, 79, 80. So and you then we went off our own ways. All those tours you did, like with George Benson and the Average White Band and, yeah. and all those bands that, the, the, you know, the perfect. Uh, yeah, I, I could see the turn up. Yeah. So no, there was not not a, a a time when you thought we should actually go to America and sit there and do like what LRB finished up doing and and perch ourselves here and do the colleges and make it that way. Yeah, look, um, that we um, well LRB had a deal with Capitol Records and they were they were far better to LRB than what sort of Motown was to us. So okay. 
they had um, they had a lot of support from their record company, and they had the all all American sound as well. So uh, it was kind of a no brainer for them to go. So you're suggesting that Motown Records was a racist organisation. <laughs> <laughs> Did you tour over in America? No. No, we didn't get there. They were planning, this was Barney's, uh, before Barney left, he was planning a a tour for us and uh, they were going to have the the mask on the the curtain. When the curtain went up, everybody would see that we were white guys and that was going to be the big kind of, you know, unveiling. But uh, that oh. never happened because, as I said, you know, the new guy that came in wasn't interested. At that time, there was a lot of stuff going on with Black Mafia and, you know, people were falling out of buildings and, and stuff like that. And, um, you know, the, the, the new president of Motown who came in, he was spending weekends in jail for tax evasion and something else, so um, uh. embezzlement or whatever. I can't remember, to be honest, but I remember... Remember Paul Wheatley, who was with they were the Wheatley brothers, and yeah. Paul went to America to, on our behalf, to you know set up some of these deals, and uh, he basically just came back, had a nervous breakdown, and left the industry. So it was uh, pretty harrowing for him. God, was that on the strength of the Where Is the World album, or what? What was the album that Motown? No, was? no, it, it was the third album, which oh, okay. here was called the Best Kept Secret, but in in the US it was just called Stylus. Okay. Yeah, and then we did the part of it all album after that. Both albums were done at TCS Studios with uh, John French Engineering, who was uh, a very, very advanced and uh, excellent engineer at the time. Did you have to fall out of the building to promote the record too, (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I wouldn't do it without a parachute. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So was that the natural evolvement of Stylus from almost like a poppy band at the start into into what you became like a like a Philadelphia soul type band? Well, I think even the first album was was certainly in that sort of Philadelphia. You know, the, our, our influences were you know clearly Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, other other acts that were on Motown, but also the Philadelphian sound like the Spinners, yeah. Stylistics. Um, you know, those vocal groups, the OJs, you know, Temptations, all that sort of stuff. It's kind of a bit smooth. It wasn't that kind of New York front. God, the OJs were a good band. They were a good group. Backstabbers, oh, yeah. a few songs yeah. they did were excellent. Oh, absolutely. Which and begs the question, which, which begs the question, why Why did you do Summer Breeze? It, it kind of, in all the things that we've talked about so far, it almost doesn't fit. Yeah, it. Um, it we used to do it live. And uh, people would just keep yelling out for it. We no- normally play it twice a night. So oh. um, we thought, well, it just seemed like the obvious choice. You know, everybody knows it. Um, you know, that'll get us started. We're doing it in sort of our own way. So we're not really kind of like trying to sound like Seals and Crofts. So, yeah, we just we, we thought it was a good move. And it was. In hindsight, it was a good move. And then World of Make Believe came after that. And that was also uh, sort of equally as successful. So we had we had two uh, fairly uh, decent hits off the off the first album, which was great. Much underrated song, world to make believe, I reckon. Yeah, I still enjoy playing it. To be honest, <laughs> I just uh, and a lot of people think you know tell me it's their favourite song, favourite style of song. So yeah, no, it's yeah it made it to that was our first number one in Adelaide. There you go. All right. 
Well, you've got to start somewhere, as John English would say. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you were really good mates with John, weren't you? Yeah, we worked together. We had a, a little duet show called Uncorked, which then became unscrewed when corked became unfashionable. <laughs> so, uh, but it was great. We'd, we'd go out probably two or three times a year for a week at a time and yeah, maybe go to Perth or Adelaide or Melbourne, Sydney, wherever, and uh, just do three or four shows, and then we'd put it away for, you know, sometimes four months, sometimes six months, and then go out again. We put it together when I was asked to do play Frederick in the Pirates of Penzance takeover from um, Simon Gallagher. And uh, so oh, yeah. I did the tour of, New, tour, tour of New Zealand, and John and I already knew each other quite well, you know, the Channel 9 days and that sort of stuff. And... Uh, so, uh, you know, we got a bit sick of Gilbert and Sullivan. So we, on our night off one week, uh, we'd organised to put on a concert for the cast and crew at a, in a private room at a hotel, um, which we did. And one of the one of the guys in the troupe put up a poster and they put couples in English uncorked. And we thought, oh, that's good, that'll stick. And then uh, we enjoyed it so much. We thought, well, we've got to do that when we get back to Oz. So, um, so we did. We put it together and... We were celebrating 20 years uh, at the time of John's passing and um, as unfortunate as, as it was, I, I was very grateful to have spent the last two weeks of his life with him. He, uh, he did uh, Melbourne, we did the Caravan Club, not Caravan Club, the Flying Saucer Club in Melbourne, we did a couple of country dates and then we ended up in Adelaide for the Fringe Festival. Yeah, right. Nice. Nice. We were on that boat in Sydney Harbour when after yeah. John passed, and um, yeah. fortunately, you knew most of the songs, and so yeah. you did the lion share of the singing while I got pissed with Jack Thompson and Angry Anderson. But um, <laughs> <laughs> that was a terrific day. It was a terrific day. You did really well, and then we did John's show on the boat. Yeah, uh, rock the boat or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. It was I mean, yeah, it, it was, was good. great. It was great, great to pay tribute to. Yeah, I, look, I knew all the songs and I knew all the stories. And uh, yeah. I even went, when I did his memorial at the State Theatre in, in Sydney, the song that I did had a, had a story which was not, you know, in, in words that were politically correct uh, in nowadays. And I thought, well, should I tell the story? And, and uh, when I got to the point, I, I said to the audience, I said, oh, John used to tell the stories here and everybody knew what story it was. I said, well, would you like me to tell them? They said, oh, raw. So, so I did. And um, yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I certainly got some looks from some of the Thespians. <laughs> and and, and is, is that why you got arrested? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not that time, but I have spent time in the back of a Dibby van. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, when, did, when did you get arrested? <laughs> no, I didn't get arrested. I just... Um, I just was um, oh, helping police I, with I, their I was, inquiries. I was, yeah, I was I was drunk in the in a, in my car asleep on the side of the road and because the keys were in it. They said, "No, you're still in charge of the yeah, car." Yeah, that's we're right. taking you back to. The, but they were just having fun with me. Yeah, they, they had this plastic chair in the back of it, and they would going around every corner they possibly could. And they get back to the station. They go, oh, "I don't know what I'm going to do with you." And I said, "Well, what? Just, uh, just put me out the back in the cell. I'll have a sleep. I'll be fine." Yeah, no, we can't do that because they would have had to have arrested me to put me out the back. So they said, oh, by the time you walk back to your car, you'll be right to drive. So oh. I walked out the door and hailed a cab. 
Mind you, I'd like to backtrack for a moment to Jack Thompson, Angry Anderson, Peter Couples and Brian Mannix on a boat. Bloody hell. <laughs> Just like Gilligan's Island, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a great day. Funny thing was, I was sitting there talking with Jack Thompson and Angry while Pete's doing yeah. all the hard work singing, and Jack's <laughs> blind. He's out of few, And he's like, it's like, I'm going to go, and then he's got to get up and say a few words. Yeah. And I'm thinking, how's this going? I go, he's pissed out of his mind. <laughs> and he gets up there and just delivers this beautiful voice yeah. and delivers this heartfelt yeah. speech. And it was so great. And then he comes back and he's back on the p- piss and he's just, he's off his dial. But when, he, <laughs> when it mattered, he was fantastic. Uh, the but consummate yeah, that- performer. Mm. Well, good girl. Yeah, yeah, very good. Hey, your, yours and John's voices would have worked really well together, I would have thought. Did you record anything? Yeah, look, we did. We did. There's some there's some live stuff floating around on YouTube of John and I doing our acoustic things. It was a weird thing because a lot of people would say to uh, us in interviews or, you know, to John, said, how does this work? You and couples couldn't be sort of more different. You know, your voices are different. Your styles of music are different. You know, your your personas, your look, everything's so different. And and John would say, oh, we're just good mates. We, we you know we love playing with each other. It's great. And, and they go, well, how does it work? He said, it's a bit like Derek and Clive with a bit of music. <laughs> and that's pretty much what it was. It was uh, we would just take the piss out of ourselves, each other, and anybody else we could think of. But it was a great show. People loved it. They kept flocking back to it. So, so. is there yeah, fun times? I miss the guy. I must admit. Yeah, and do you miss that kind of performing in terms of you can just sit on stage and tell and tell stories and and uh, and play songs and and not worry about who you're offending? Yeah, look, that that were great times. I mean, you, we probably have to tame that down now because you know there'd be certain audience members that would take offence, and uh, you know you get reported and you know whatever else. But I mean, I still do a bit of that myself. I mean, apart from various other sort of shows and gigs I do. I really enjoy the the kind of sit-down dinner shows where I'm just sort of solo acoustic, telling stories about my songs and my life and stuff like that. And still very, very enjoyable to do. Yeah, good. Do, do you still write and record, Pete? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. still do. Not, 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 I mean, I, I did an album in um, 2016 and then, uh, then I followed up a couple of years later, 2018 or 20. And then when, when we started doing the live streaming from home, I decided to record an album of the songs that I was streaming, which were a lot of covers, like kind of half covers, half originals. And um, so I did that, but I haven't done anything since. I've uh, just been, just been working on a few other projects. So um, I'll probably get back into that maybe, maybe next year sometime. Didn't you, yeah. have a, didn't you have a horrible experience with that whole streaming thing and being hacked and stuff? Yeah, yeah, I lost my well, you know, when when COVID hit, or you know, the hackers, they, you know, they were just they were bored, so they, a lot of people got hacked. Yeah. I mean, it was popping up in the papers and online all the time. Yeah, I, I lost because my music page was linked to my personal page. They hacked my personal page, so I lost my music page as well. And uh, I wow. went through all the authorities, and I'm still I'm still asking questions. Facebook are faceless. Yeah. You cannot contact them. Uh, according to some, there's only one person in the whole of Australasia that you can get to if you can get to them. Um, yeah, it's just it's ridiculous. Um, and then I've sent them, you know, 
every bit of information I have on my personal, you know, photos, stuff like that, you know, the whole the whole thing but with the with the Facebook page I had and all that sort of stuff, but no, no respond there. Good God. Jeez. Yeah, we're, yeah, we've never been more connected and communicative in, in our lives, yet we can't talk to anybody anyway. Yeah, well, that's why they call it their Facebook book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, your daughter's got some musical ability? Yeah, yeah, the, the, all my kids have got musical ability, but they're smart enough not, not to go down that path. <laughs> Although the youngest one has, she's performed with me a couple of times on, uh, well, both of them have. My elder daughter with Diana is a um, she's she's a lawyer, so she's very smart. Uh, but she's a very very nice singer, and she's come on a couple of times, sang with me. And then my other daughter Taylor, who's also a very very younger one, she's a very good songwriter, yeah, extremely talented songwriter. And she's been on and done a couple of her own songs, and uh, they're extremely well received. Uh, the other kids, the older kids, they're all they're all musical, but they've all got. Um, Intelligent jobs outside the music industry. <laughs> yeah, that is intelligent to work outside the music <laughs> industry. Yes, yeah, uh, so they can look after their father in his retirement. Is there a family album on the books on the drawing board, perhaps? Oh, look, we talked about that for years because my brother and I continued to sort of off and on get together and write songs. He was a great bush poet, Terry, and he was the one that I joined his band when I was twelve. And we were going to do a, an album because his son is extremely talented. He's been living in the UK for years, producing stuff for Sony. He's also got his own couple of bands that he plays in. He, at one stage in Australia, he was producing for Dan Kelly. And, oh, yeah. and I think he also, yeah. And um, so uh, at one stage in the top five albums in the indie charts, he produced three of them. Yeah. Wow. So he's a very, very fine musician, Aaron, Aaron Couples. Yeah. So we had spoken about it. We still continue to speak, but while he's in the UK, probably won't happen. But um, he, he's coming back next year, so maybe so, we'll uh, reignite it. So where does Jimmy fit into the uh, the family tree? Uh, you've got to go back to Ireland. Uh, I think about three or four generations, and then we get to the the seed. And uh, what happened with there is that, well, Jimmy's side, they left Ireland to go to Scotland. So he came out via Scotland and then some of the other couples went to America and then there was some that my great-grandfather came out with the Kellys back in um, uh, from Northern Ireland and uh, moved to Glen Rowan. And they, I was going to uh, say, the Glen Rowan the- Kellys, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those ones. Oh, yeah, they're wow. all from they're all Northern Islanders. County County Atrium, which is Belfast, is a part of County Atrium. Yeah. So yeah, they they actually ended up building a little shack out at Winton, which is about half hour horse ride from Glen Rowan, and they um, they had a little wine bar in Glen Rowan, apparently, according to my auntie. So yeah, so there was a connection there. Wow. I'm- I'm trying to work out how far half an hour's horse ride is. That's <laughs> <laughs> ten minutes in the car. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I know you're doing some some sort of theme shows as well as uh, just your your acoustic stuff and that. What what's the theme shows that you're doing around the place? Yeah, well, I, I put together the Stevie Wonder show because I've been kind of somebody suggested it to me once, and I thought, oh god, that's a big scene. But anyway, I thought, yeah, great idea. So I put that together. 
and about uh, probably about six years ago now, five six yep. years ago, and that 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 run very very well. I've done that. You know, we've, we had great success in Melbourne and Brisbane and Cairns, and then uh, COVID hit, and then during COVID, I decided to do. Um, I'm going to put together Baccarat because I just I've always loved the songs, and I thought it'd be really nice to do my own arrangements of, of Baccarat classics. And uh, so I, I've been working on that, and that just got sort of released in Melbourne a few months back, and uh, that was really, really wonderfully received. So I'll, I'll do that for a little bit. You know, as John would say to me, he goes, uh, Captain, we've got to keep reinventing ourselves. <laughs> so that's kind of a part of it, you know, just reinventing yourself and just having some other things that you can do that you can offer in a agents, clients, whatever, and uh, and then I just stick doing my own stuff as well. I'll just keep writing and recording songs and working on other things. Yeah. Um, when you did the Stevie Wonder show, I heard you got in a bit of trouble because at first you were doing the blackface and that didn't go down too well. Is that, is that right? <laughs> uh, the old Jolson look. <laughs> the uh, old Jolson. No, I would, I would never insult myself, let alone Stevie. Uh, I was actually asked. One agent came to me and said, um, oh, do you, do you dress up like Stevie and do paint, paint your face? And I said, nah, no, I'm paying tribute to his music. I'm not paying tribute to his blackface. Uh, and anyway, the venue didn't want it. <laughs> <I'll stop> it. <laughs> well, they didn't want it because you didn't do that. Yeah. Oh really? Wow. Oh really? Yeah. Isn't I just thought it was the silliest thing I could possibly say. And <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> One thing I want to ask you about before we finish up is: uh, do you met James Taylor and spent some time with James Taylor having a beer and stuff? Was that was that a one yeah. of those kind of pinch yourself moments? Ah, oh, yeah, certainly was. I mean, I've, I've been a massive fan of James uh, all my life. Yeah, you know, me too. Since, since Fire and Rain and all the way through. I've, I think I've got just about every album he's ever recorded in his Christmas album, uh, which is absolutely awesome as well. Yeah, it was just uh, I'd been to see him the night before, but my manager at the time owned inflation in, in the city. All right. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, San Francisco and his brother George. They also own grain store as well, and uh, anyway, I was um, I was at the inflation uh, this night, and um, James and his tour manager came in and uh, introduced themselves to Sam, and then Sam brought him over to the bar, and we grabbed a drink and chit chatting away, and then uh, uh, Sam took his uh, tour manager for a bit of a, a tour of the nightclub, and James and I just sat at the bar and had a beer and. A, a bit of a chit-chat, but uh, if you ask me what I said or what he said, I can't remember. I was, I was, I was just too much in awe. I know we spoke about sort of growing up sort of country life and all that sort of stuff and the inspiration it's, it's, we still get from it, from songs, uh, things like that. But that's about all I can remember about our conversation. Wow. Thanks thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. It's been lovely having no. a catch-up. Thanks, yeah, Greg. yeah, no, great. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Brian. No worries, mate. Uh, look forward to having a beer with you soon. Yeah, yeah, well, now you're up, up the coast. Um, yeah, give us a call. The SS, Min- the SS Minnow is uh, circling around uh, the Gold Coast. Now, Jack Thompson's the captain and Angry Anderson's the uh, the bosun. <laughs> they'll be, they'll be we, get, we get Caddy and Russell Morris on oh, there. Oh, God. Oh, boy, that'll be a good day. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Thanks, Peter. Really See you later, fellas.
forward to uh, the reuniting of you and Jack Thompson and Angry Anderson and, uh, and and a rather large barrel of alcoholic beverages. Well, I tell you what, I'd, um, I'd, be, I'd be up for that. I had a great day that day. It was a really good day. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, no, really good. And, and um, he's a lovely bloke. Ripper yeah, he is, and he'll be back uh, in January doing some shows uh, around Melbourne. But uh, he's very, uh, very active on Facebook, so check him out on Facebook if you want to uh, see uh, where he's playing. But uh, if we, uh, when we get some dates, we'll we'll let you know on this podcast. We and can I, see I Peter Cup as well. And you can see his sex tape from the internet. I think <laughs> it's on it's on Red Porn. I think. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a beauty. He, Thanks you know, for sharing. He doesn't, he, he doesn't do anything by half, does our Pete? We'll, uh, we'll finish the show up with a bit of uh, him and John uh, performing live. I think it was at uh, Stanthorpe or somewhere. Uh, it's a little live YouTube video that I found. We'll play a bit of that uh, to finish the show off. That's not the duo I saw him doing. No, exactly. Okay, fine. Right. All right. Good. Let's get his, to his wife is a lovely lady. <laughs> too, Let's get to be Birdles. Uh, this is part two of the conversation. Uh, in the first part, which is in the last episode, we uh, we talked about uh, Zoot, we talked about Mississippi, and we talked about that very first couple of meetings that finished up becoming the Little River Band. So let's pick the story up from from there with uh, Beat Birdles. Let's pick it up. Well, Glenn Shorrock entering the band as well. He had also been writing songs for a music publishing company in London called MAM Music. And uh, he brought Help Us On Its Way and Statue of Liberty and Meanwhile and all these songs that ended up on our very first album. And so we had, you know, the three vocalists basically were the three songwriters in the group. Yeah. The way the band developed, for me, it's a long way there is is the sort of benchmark song. I mean, when that's the on your first album, God, that must have been intimidating to then say, well, we've actually got better songs than this, believe it or not. <laughs> that's right. Well, you know, it's the long way there was such an epic at eight minutes and 39 seconds. But, you know, we, we were just doing really what bands were doing during those days. Everybody had extended songs and, you know, and we were just, experimenting with our music and letting the music take us where it went kind of thing, you know. So, and, you know, and that's why there are all these different little segments in the, It's a Long Way There. It also caused us to have to narrow our song choices for the first album because with It's a Long Way There being so long, uh, back in those days you could fit maybe 42 minutes, 43 minutes aside on vinyl, and so we were cut down to, you know, having nine songs on that first album. That improved with, you know, After Hours and then Diamond Tina Cocktail, we could have more songs on that. It was just an, an interesting 
time, you know, of recording. And of course, everything was done in the studio with musicians and adding the vocals later. And the fact that you guys produced yourself pretty much in the, the, those early days, that, that, that's sort of an interesting place to have been for, for you as musicians as well, I would have thought. It was. Yeah, I think initially when we got together, there was, there was no, uh, you know, major dis- disagreements between us. We were just excited to be recording our first album that EMI had offered us a budget. You know, I mean, <laughs> God, when I think back now, when we first got together between Glenn, Graham and my songwriting, we had, and also because of the fact that Mississippi hadn't recorded a second album, we had all these songs. We had, we must have chosen nine songs out of 60. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So a lot of those songs that didn't make the first album would be presented again for the second and third albums. You know, and in a case like a song like Lady, it was presented for the first album, it was presented for After Hours, it was presented for Damitina Cocktail, got rejected for those three albums and finally made it onto the Sleeper Catcher album along with Reminiscing and turned out to be our biggest selling single in the United States. So <laughs> go figure. <laughs> <laughs> that is bizarre. That's bizarre, isn't it? That's one of those sliding door moments where you go, imagine if we had put it on the first album, would it have been the song that it turned out to be? Exactly. You just, you know, like, do you call that fate or what? I mean, it's it's just so interesting. Was it fun? And I was around you in those early days and, and used to talk to, uh, you know, Paul Wheatley on the road in America when you were doing the college tours and all that sort of stuff. Do you, do you look back on it with the, that it was fun or was it a grind or was it was it just what you did because you had this relentless pursuit of wanting to make it in, in America? No, it was never a grind for me. I, in actual fact, uh, you know, Graham didn't enjoy being on the road, but I, I love being on the road. I, I, you know, that was my life at the time. You know, you find your own routine on the road, I think. Back in those days to occupy myself, I was a big writer of letters, whether it be to family or friends back in Australia. I used to go for runs in the morning, you know, 45 minutes to an hour to keep myself fit. But, you know, at the same time, you were in a different town, different city, you know, pretty much every day of the week. And because of that relentless pursuit that we were in to want to make it, we were playing six shows and we would allow ourselves one night a week to rest our voices because, you know, our vocals were taxing on the road, depending on what song you were playing. But those harmonies, you know, I mean, I was always singing at the top of my register. So you had to, you know, look after yourself. You know, when I started touring in 76, I used to be a smoker for 10 years. Yeah. When I saw the schedule that we were under, I decided to give it up because I thought to myself, you know, you can't keep singing like this if you keep smoking. So I stopped. Was were there a lot of sacrifices that you that you made to 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 do that? Because well, your your schedule was punishing. I mean, you really were doing the the the, the big tour of America. Yeah. Not only was it you know the six gigs a week type of thing, we were also the reason I think why the Capitol Records loved us was the fact that we were so willing to go and do music TV shows, 
radio interviews. And back in those days, you know, in America, you had AM one side of the building, FM the other side. So, you know, we would do radio interviews, we would do press interviews, magazines, newspapers, whatever town we were in at the time, whatever the newspaper was. So we were, you know, the Capitol Record reps loved us because of the fact that we were we were never too, you know, there were a lot of American bands at that time who thought they were just too good to go and do press because look look who I am, you know, look, look who we are. We have number three in the chart, blah, 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 you know. And, you know, it boils down to an ego thing. We didn't have any ego. We really didn't. We just wanted to break it in America. We just wanted our music to, uh, to make it there. And not just in America, but in Europe as well. Was there a moment when you thought we've made it? You know, I probably that boils down to the chart positions of, you know, Lady and Reminiscing. You know, once we started getting, well, you know, the first album didn't do much. It just kind of gave us a name in America, you know, and that was the release of It's a Long Way There and the second single, I'll Always Call Your Name. It didn't really do a whole lot. But when Diamantina Cocktail came out, and we had helpers on its way and happy anniversary. That's really when we started taking off. And at that point, we were still supporting other acts, you know, but they were major American acts because we were getting, you know, chart positions. And then finally around the time of uh, Sleeper Catcher, Reminiscing a Lady, we really started to cross over into being a headlining act and, um, and that continued on with First Under the Wire when we had Lonesome Loser and Cool Change, you know. Those were two really, really big songs for us in America. Yeah. I look at the, the, the track listing for The Ultimate Hits and it, it, it's, it's the soundtrack of my radio career. <laughs> Not only the soundtrack of your life, but it's a soundtrack of my radio career. And for that, it's a soundtrack of a lot of people's lives. And so many of those songs mean so many things to uh, different people, whether it's Happy Anniversary or whether it's, uh, you know, The Melancholy of Home on Monday or whether it's uh, Reminiscing or whatever. I mean, you, you just much look at that when you, when you see that album and go, wow. Yeah. Well, that's the lovely thing also but about having, uh, you know, three songwriters, actually four, when David Briggs entered the band, he became the fourth songwriter. So it was really nice because we had variety in our songs. You know, all our songs were different. One was never the same as the other, except for the stamp of that vocal sound, Yeah, you know. And that's that's what that went right across the board. So yeah, yeah. But when you, I made some notes actually, where with us talking and uh, the ult- ultimate hits has twenty five songs on it. It's being released across two CDs, or for the people who love vinyl, it'll be three vinyl albums, and then of course your digital downloads where you would get it all at once. Yeah. I mean, I have I have some very well worn uh, copies of uh, the original albums uh, sitting in my in my record collection that that got a, a hammering over the years. Are, are there songs? I mean, are there songs that that bring back a town or a a place or a, a thing for you that that still to this day that they they still do those things? These songs do that for you? Well, the one that stands out, I think, is Home on Monday because of, uh, you know, Glenn having written those words 
and being in Las Vegas at the time that Elvis died in 1977. And so immediately, you know, my mind goes back to that particular um, time. And that, well, that song takes me to that time, you know. Uh, I guess the other ones, not so much, except for maybe it's a long way there because we always opened with that song, you know. That was kind of the song that we we would start our show with it and we would settle into the evening kind of thing, you know, because of its length and everything. Because of the length of that song, I think the audience were just, you know, <laughs> kind of getting into it and they had eight minutes and 39 seconds of being able to get <laughs> Yeah, it was kind of a, it was an amazing song, you know, and I always loved playing it over the years. There was not one time when I would have thought, oh, God, do we have to play this again? You know, I, that never entered my mind. It was the This Is Us song, isn't it? It was the song that said, hey, here we are, we're here, let's, let's, let's do this together. It was the perfect concert opener. Yeah, it was perfect. It couldn't have been more perfect, actually, yeah. Your relationship with the, with the various members of the band uh, these days, uh, is it something that you, you look forward to catching up with the, them every now and again or how's that work now that you live in Nashville? Well, most of us have gone our own ways, you know. Uh, Glenn, of course, keeps performing. George McArdle is doing his own thing in Brisbane. He's still very much doing his Christian pursuit. Well, he left to be a minister, didn't he? Yeah, he did become a, a minister for yeah. a while, yeah. Yeah, or a pastor, as, as some people call it. I'd stay in touch with George a bit. I stay in touch with Graham a lot. A lot of the, um, I was actually, he asked me to be involved on the writing or the the grammar corrections uh, of the liner notes for Ultimate Hits and Masterpieces, which I did from here, which is easy to do. And um uh, don't stay in touch so much with Derek anymore or or Glenn. Every now and then I'll, you know, hear from Glenn or I'll write him an email or something, but it's, it's very rare. I mean, you know, we're all in our 70s now and we're all doing different things, I guess, you know. So that decision you made, was it 25 years ago uh, to, to, to move to Nashville? Uh, we've been here 30 years. 30 years, okay. Was it? Because you wanted to get out of Australia, what was the? Tell us the motivation behind wanting to live in Nashville and what what Nashville's I, been for you for the thirty years. When I quit Little River Band, I really hit a wall, you know, for about two years, and I guess I needed time to think about what did I want to do and where was I going, kind of thing. But I didn't realise just how caught up I was in the cocoon of Little River Band. So when I left, I um, didn't do very much for two years other than sit at home and write songs. I did some production things, which I loved because I loved being in the studio. And then after about, when did we move here? We moved here in 92. So some eight years later, uh, I had kept saying to Donna, my wife, you know, why don't we just move to the States, you know, and I can have a, a clean start somewhere new, you know. Even then I wasn't thinking so much about Nashville. I knew I didn't want to go back into a band in Australia after having been in Little River Band. I didn't want to go back into playing clubs and pubs and doing all that sort of stuff. I, I just, I thought, you know, look, 
I've climbed up the highest rung on the ladder here with Little River Band. What else is, what else, what possibly more can I do in Australia? And so I turned my eyes to America. My thoughts started turning to, you know, I think, I think there's more than uh, that I can learn about songwriting. We actually moved back initially to Donna's hometown where she lives, where she grew up in Missouri. And uh, but within, within three months of living there, I was already commuting to Nashville because I thought Nashville is a songwriter's town. And we'd already made the decision that we didn't want to live in L.A. Oh, and we didn't want to live in New York. We didn't want to live in a big town anymore, a big city anymore. Our girls were 10 and 12 at the time. And we were looking for a place that had a really great family atmosphere and up life, upbringing, that kind of thing. And so we moved into Nashville in 93 and our girls went through schools here, and very good schools and into colleges and they're on their own now. They're in their, well, yeah, they're both in their 40s, if you believe it. So, mm. And so that's what kept me here. And it, and it, and is a, it really is a great place to live, yeah. you know. But musically, you know, I, I haven't done really that much more here in Nashville. I wrote with a lot of people. I've met a lot of people, rubbed shoulders with a lot of people. But I think, you know, the pinnacle of what I have done in my career will always be Little River Band. Even, even when I first moved here to Nashville, you know, Little River Band was my calling card. And, of course, every door opened. And so I got to write with a lot of different people. And But, you know... And who, I, I really who did you write with, Babe? Who, who are the sort of people that you wrote with that, that we would have we'd know about? Well, Bob Welsh. Bob Welsh. Do you remember him? Yeah, yeah, from Fleetwood be, Mac. Yeah, I wrote with Bob Welsh. I wrote one time. I wrote with Michael McDonald. You know, but none, none of those songs really did anything. You know, it was just you know writing songs for the sake of writing songs, kind of thing. I tried very hard for five years to get my foot in the door. You know, writing country music. But uh, after the five years, I thought to myself, you know, this is not, this is not really where my heart is. I live in the pop rock world, you know. I, mm. I love that. I switched gears and hooked up with a guy called Bill Como, who was a session keyboard player from L.A. And um, I went, met him at his studio. He'd actually played on the Time Exposure album. He played on the Night Owls and... Uh, Take It Easy On Me, uh, Man On Your Mind. Uh, George Martin had brought him over to Montserrat in the West Indies to play on some stuff for us. And that's where Bill and I first met, although we didn't really connect there. We, we connected here in Nashville. And we ended up forming uh, an independent record label called Sonic Sorbet Records. And we recorded quite a few projects. You know, I mean, Bill and I were getting older and these young people were still coming to Nashville wanting to record and do albums and all that sort of stuff. So we felt like we were, you know, giving of our expertise in the studio as producers and and, uh, musicians and we gave our best to these up-and-coming young people to give them what they wanted as far as their little uh, custom CDs or custom albums, whatever you like to call it, you know. And we recorded some great music over, you know, a period of about 20 years. You know, we decided to go our own ways about four years ago. Yeah. So are you you writing now? Are you writing stuff now on your own or what? 
periodically, I've still got songs that, that I have and I have written that I would love to record. But, you know, it comes down to the fact that who gets to hear them nowadays mm. as far as if you don't have the clout of a major label behind you, at my age, do I want to go the hard slog way of promoting myself on Facebook and, you know, through social media and stuff like that? It's just that doesn't appeal to me. Every now and then, you know, I'll still pick up my guitar and play. I still have things to say. And maybe one day I will do something. I will record something, you know. I mean, I know that there are still fans out there who would love to hear what I'm doing. Every now and then somebody will ask me, have you, you know, have you recorded anything new lately? I haven't. I, I mean, I recorded one solo CD that I did when I was working with Bill Carmo. It was called Driven by Dreams. Yeah. I was very proud of that, but uh, but that was maybe the beginning of me thinking, you know, without a major label behind you, what can you, what do you hope to achieve? You know, I, I would hate to be a young person nowadays getting into the music business because it's just not what it used to be. You know, yeah, the pathway's certainly changed, hasn't it? It has totally, yeah. 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 Uh, you, you obviously you channeled an enormous amount of your creativity into into writing the book too, which is obviously something that you took an, uh, and the detail of all that. Oh, I tell you, it you know I came home and from one of the BSG tours that I did in the early two thousands, and I uh, sat down. And I thought to myself, you know, if you don't start putting down your thoughts, your memories of your life and music, you're going to start forgetting things. And so I opened my computer up, opened up a Word document, and I started writing. And I didn't start, stop writing for about five years. <laughs> and it was an interesting process because, like you say, it was a creative thing for me to do. Mm. Along the way, I would, you know, email friends in Australia, musician friends, even non-musician friends, and say, hey, what do you remember about this happening at this time, you know, in Adelaide or in Melbourne or wherever, you know? And then as the people who I was contacting started writing back to me, I decided this is too good to leave out of the book. And so I started incorporating what they were telling me as part of the book, which made it more interesting to me because you weren't always getting it from my perspective. You were getting it from somebody else's perspective who was around at that time. You know, well, somebody might say, oh, well, this is how I remember it, you know, kind of thing. So I think it made it more interesting to read. And then, you know, I probably wrote for maybe five years and it took me a good two years to find a publisher who would actually take me on to publish the publish the book. Yeah. Five years ago, Brolga Publishing in Melbourne offered me a, a publishing deal to have it released. I've been, you know, it's still selling nowadays, not, not as many, of course, but um, I still get comments from people telling me how much they enjoyed reading it. And, uh, you know, I kind of, it was, I've always been this way, Kevin. I've always bared my soul in my songs and, I bared my soul in my memoir as well. You yeah. Know, Did you get stories stuff. from people of uh, versions of events that you went, hang on, I don't remember that at all? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I did that too. I'd actually written 120,000 words for the book 
when the publisher came along, he said, this is all very well, but you've got to cut it back to 80,000. So I had to go back through and, <laughs> and, and take out what I thought would be, oh, this is kind of boring for a reader to read. They don't want to read about this. So It's like taking two minutes out of it's a long way there. Which two minutes do you take out? You don't want to do that. <laughs> I know what you mean. It was a difficult thing to do. Yeah. It was, it was difficult. It must have been incredibly satisfying to sit back and look and go, you know, I mean, I don't want to sound fanboyish here, but I am. Um, the, what you achieved in your music career over that, uh, up until today, has just been, it's, it's astonishing from where you came yeah. from. Every now and then, either somebody else, whether it be Donna, my wife, and rarely do I think, well, hang on a minute, you are you, but look at the body of work that you have been involved in over 50 plus years now. That's pretty darn good, you know. So, but I'm not an ego-centered person at all. So I that, that thought rarely occurs to me. I don't, I don't think about that, you know. I've even had people's friends here in Nashville say, you know, when they see like my gold records and all that sort of stuff, you know, oh, one person said, you don't realize who you are. <laughs> What you said, you know, I cracked up about it because I just don't think of myself in that in those terms, you know. Uh, one of the things I always loved about the Little River Band in that in that seventies period in particular was the fact that it wasn't about the ego and it wasn't about the trappings of success. It was about the work. It was about it was about the songs. It was about playing on stage. It was about the experience. It wasn't about hey, look at me. No, absolutely, and and you know, I mean. Most times when you see me on stage, I would have a shit-eating grin on my face because I loved it, you know. I loved being up there. I loved hearing the music. I always worked very closely being kind of a rhythm lead player, you know. I was in between rhythm and lead. I always worked very closely with the rhythm section, whether it be you know, Derek and Roger McLaughlin or Derek and George McArdle or Derek and Wayne Nelson, you know, I always felt that I was that next extension and I always played very tight with those guys. Always just had a ball up there. I just I just loved it. Yeah. And that joy came out through the vocals with you and Graham and, and Glenn. That, that you, could, you could feel that when you, when you went and saw you guys live. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. And, uh, yeah, we certainly played some memorable gigs during our career. And uh, you're not not just in one place either. There were some great memor- memorable gigs in Australia and the United States and Europe as well. Yeah, it was a magic combination. It's one of those ones that just all the pieces fell together and it just it it clicked and it worked. And and what you what you achieved is illustrated in this in this new package that's been put together. It's just fantastic. Yeah, and I consider myself very very lucky to have been part of you know. Uh, three great bands that Australia had, you know, Kazoot, Mississippi, and then Little River Band. Very lucky indeed. To every one of those groups, I always gave my all. I gave more than 100%, you know. For me, it was always about the music. It was always about what is the best arrangement for this song that we can make it. That's That was always my focus. Yep. 
Oh, well, you've certainly achieved that. You proved that you don't have to be a complete asshole to do it. <laughs> Is that a compliment? <laughs> Absolutely fantastic to catch up with you, mate. Thanks so much for your time. Been very generous having a chat to me. I really appreciate it. No, it's great. I'm glad we caught up again after all these years. That's fantastic. Yeah. A long way from that limousine to to doing shopping centre appearances in 75 or whenever it was. Right, right. I know. When you Amazing. went, and I remember in the back of that, you were saying to Glenn, you were talking about home on Monday, and you said, "What if I sing the harmony like just a little, a little clip after you, so it sounds like that delay thing on the record?" And Glenn went, "Yeah, right. that'd be good." And you actually practiced it in the in the limo when we were driving back to the hotel. I'm sitting oh, there, really? I'm sitting oh. there with my mouth open, going, "Oh wow!" <laughs> I don't remember that, but uh, yeah, that that probably happened yeah. for sure. No, it was yeah. fantastic. Mate, thank you so much for your time. Uh, health and happiness to you and uh, and to, to Donna and your family. Uh, all, all the very best. Thanks so much. The same to you, Kevin. Anytime. Hey. I'm going to need
Ultimate Hits and Masterpieces is the name of that uh, new package that's out that uh, has the, uh, wow, it's, uh, it's th- as B mentioned uh, in the interview there, it's uh, three vinyl albums, it's uh, CDs, it's, it's everything. It's a, a fabulous package that uh, that Beeb and, and Graham uh, have sort of put together and uh, everything you ever wanted to hear from LRB is there. It's been remastered and uh, is uh, just in all its glory. So check that out, Ultimate Hits and Masterpieces. Do you have a name for your package? <laughs> what? It's a fair enough question. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I can't answer that. No, no. Mr. Happy, is it? <laughs> Mr. Happy, there he is. Uh, Look at you giggling uh, away. You are Mr. Happy. That's oh, fantastic. God. Uh, 1-300-555-576. It's not what I call uh, anything. Uh, it's what I, what I used to call Murcott's Driving Excellence. Is that what you call your package? <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> Say hello to Murcott. Well, at least, it, at least it'll be alive. It won't be, you know, in a, involved in an accident. It'll know what it's doing. It'll know where to go. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it'll know where this to is, go. This is just getting worse. Murcott's um, <laughs> um, uh, driving Hello to put excellence. the headlights on when you get to the tunnel and... Um, <laughs> You're an yeah. evil human being sometimes, Manning. <laughs> driving excellence. You, you are, honestly. Look, you know, if, if, if Kev had gone to Merkel's Driving Excellence and wasn't having a shag while he was trying to drive, the car wouldn't be in the shop. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. Um, no, it's not it true. Was, it wasn't your fault, but um, it does just reinforce and remind you that it is important to drive carefully yes. and if, you, if you've got family going away, especially the younger ones, Give them, a, give them a top up at down at Murcott's. Yep. They'll sort you right out. A gift certificate is available online, murcott's.edu.au, or give them a call on 1300 576 uh, All right, that's uh, that's the end of the show. I'm going to finish with a little bit from uh, from Peter Couples and, uh, and John English together at one of the live shows they did when uh, when John was uh, still with us. Thanks to Pete for his time. Uh, look out for dates for him appearing live and uh, and also a special thanks to B Birdles for having a chat with us as well. Uh, coming look, up... So, so, hang on, we've got to look out for... Peter Couples date, did you say? Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> um, okay. Just his dates, not his package. Uh, John O'Hurley's no. coming up, Mr. Peterman from Seinfeld. He'll be in a, a forthcoming episode. We've got our Christmas episode on the way uh, in, oh. a, in a couple of weeks' time too. So lots of good stuff coming up uh, on the Life of Brian podcast. Thank you, uh, Brian. Thank you, Kevin, and thank you for listening. I give away the secrets, mate. I'm not enough to show the way I feel about you. For the times they gonna be rough, I know that I, I will always want you. Well, time goes by, I never knew what a woman. Time's not long enough 
To do all the things you want me to do So I'm gonna make sure 